Well, last night it was our joy to have with us Dr. Steve Pettit, and he spoke to us about the sovereignty of the gospel and the way that it is compelling and drawing. And he talked about the magnet and the way that it draws the steel filings from the ashes. And so we think of how Reformed Baptist Network is glorifying God through fellowship and cooperation and fulfilling the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. And we have missionaries whom we have sent to the ends of the earth. And they've taken the magnet of the gospel into deep, dark places amidst ashes to find the elect of the steel filing. So let's just consider our missionaries. Just let me recite Bob and Kathy Self, who labor in Atlanta, uh, Marcelo and Nancy Brando in South America, David and Nikki Vaughn in France, Heath Dame laboring in the uh, Northern Africa area, John and Beth Anna Corti who are in Arizona, John and Mel Rittersgaard in Barbados, Dwayne and Kimberly Baldwin in Serbia, Tiago and Marta Oliveira, who are in Lisbon, Larry and Bonnie Seacrest, who've been in Peru, Michael and Ashley Mahdi, who are in Ireland, uh, North African Partnerships, Obed Rupertos, Pastor Sudarshan in India, Raul Therese in Mexico, Olivia Fav in Switzerland, Sam Masters, who was scheduled to preach for us on Thursday morning, but because of a critical accident in the life of his granddaughter, Olivia, he won't be with us, and we'll have Jim Adams, who will be speaking to us. Then we have chaplains James Gallion, Josh Stoley, Jonathan Black, and then Ben Killian, who's laboring in Zambia. And, of course, we also have, as we mentioned this afternoon, Seth Curtis, Jane Wick, and Alec Therese. These are our mighty men and women who are laboring to the ends of the earth. May the Lord glorify his name through their efforts. And let's continue glorifying by singing. Please stand together. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, good evening. My name is Eric, and uh, I'll read to you from the scriptures uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You could kindly follow in your copies of God's word or as is projected on the screens. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is God's holy word. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. 
In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Thus far, the reading of God's word may please him to add his blessing to it. May we please pray. O great God, creator of heaven and earth, from the rising of the sun even to the going down, your name is great, and it is greatly to be praised. And we gladly bow our hearts this evening to worship you. And we thank you for having gathered us here so that we may in various ways worship you, and particularly now as we eagerly await the preaching of your word. O oh Lord, you have taught us that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness would be filled. And Lord, we hunger and thirst for righteousness this night. Please fill us afresh. O oh Lord, forgive us for the many times when we have tranquilized ourselves with trivia and allowed ourselves to be distracted by trite things. Grant, O oh Lord, that this night we would see you once more fresh, that your light would be shining anew in the preaching and in the hearing of your word as our dear brother, Dr. Joe Piper, would be preaching. O oh Lord, we pray that as you open our eyes more and more to see the tasks you've called us to do, that we would be those who delight in doing these tasks. Forgive us for the many times, Lord, when we have only prayed for tasks that are equal to our powers. We pray, O oh Lord, help us instead to wait on you for power that is equal to the task for which you have called us. O oh Lord, we pray that this day once more, may your word be clear in our midst. May it be like a plumb line in our midst and protect us from being those who respond foolishly to the plumb line of your word. As we gauge ourselves against it, if we find ourselves to have gone astray, grant, O oh Lord, that we would repent and flee to the name of the Lord, which is a strong tower in the Lord Jesus. 
that we may find safety. And kindly grant that where we are on the straight and the narrow, we would continue to humble ourselves before you and we would know your grace to run with perseverance the race that you have marked out for us. Kindly grant, O oh Lord, that we would all delight in these tasks you have assigned us which are beyond our powers, because we know if any ought of praise be wrought, the glory would be yours alone. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Dear brother, John Miller will introduce the preacher. As Eric mentioned, my name is John Miller, and I'm a pastor at Redeemer Baptist Church in Macon, Georgia, and serve as a vice president at Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, but I am an alumni of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, which is why I have the great honor and privilege of introducing our speaker this evening. I think what you need to know about uh, Dr. Joseph Piper, who we affectionately call as Dr. P, um, is that he is a faithful servant of the Lord. He's faithful as a husband and a father, married to his wife, Sissy, for over 50 years, have two grown children and 10 grandchildren. He was faithful to the call of the gospel and to defend the gospel. He was one of the charter members and charter teaching elders of the Presbyterian Church in America and has continued to be faithful in that charge uh, to hold firmly and truly to the gospel. In part of that work, he's written numerous books, a couple of my favorites, are his book on the Lord's Day. If you have not read it, I warmly commend it to you. Uh, it's just a very helpful and um, godly way of understanding God's day that he set aside for us. And of course, it's appropriate that he wrote a commentary on Galatians, a book about defending the true gospel from a man who, by God's grace, has done so. He's also been faithful to answer the call to train men. After 20 years or so of pastoral uh, service, he then became the president and the professor of systematic theology and homiletics at Greenville uh, Presbyterian in 1998, served faithfully there for 22 years, and continues when most men would retire and go somewhere else. Can't get rid of him. <laughs> but he's faithful to serve now as president emeritus and to continue to teach. And on top of that, he's now even serving in a replant work at Antioch Presbyterian Church. He's one of those guys who won't stop. <laughs> and we praise the Lord for that. Um, he's faithful, uh, and he would tell you it's not by his own strength. It is by, as we'll hear tonight, the sustaining grace of God. And that's what he's going to speak to us. And I know that by experience because he was able to have sustaining grace to deal with stubborn Baptists like me. <laughs> Thank you, John. It's great to see John and Chris, two of our earliest graduates who were in this church. I want to thank the uh, elders here for this opportunity of uh, uh, serving you uh, this week. It's um, seminaries. I've had a close relationship with this church ever since I came here in 98, and good fellowship and theological discussion over the years with uh, early graduates and uh, because of the mission emphasis of Grace Baptist, they're now sending us students from around the world, and we are very blessed to have them uh, in our midst. Uh, I'm very humbled. Uh, I'm speaking alongside two men whom I greatly admire, and uh, 
So again, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm also excited because I'm committed to the um, Catholicity of the visible church and probably even more importantly, Reformed ecumenism. And so I rejoice in opportunities like this. I bring greetings from Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and from Dr. Master. And he's told me to tell you that uh, if uh, you can work it in the schedule, Jamie, or maybe Thursday afternoon, if a group wants to get together for a special tour, he'll give it to you. And maybe somebody here can uh, coordinate that if any of the people uh, want to come over um, and, and do that. But we're very thankful both for the work here and for, I mean, this is fantastic, and you guys are just one step closer to being Presbyterians, having a general, <laughs> a general assembly. <laughs> and this missions work. Yeah, well, I praise, praise God for that. My text tonight is 2 Corinthians 4, the first six verses. And I'm going to be preaching from the um, New American Standard. I was going to preach from the English Standard, which I realize is what the church uses. But uh, although there are most places, there's not a lot of difference, but there were some places that I thought that the New American Standard was a bit closer to, uh, to the Greek, and so I will be uh, doing that. Let me read these first six verses. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Thus far, God's holy word, let us pray. Holy triune God, as a servant looks to his master and a handmaiden to her mistress, we lift our eyes up unto you. We open wide our mouths, Lord, that you might fill them with good things. We plead with you that your spirit will come, that Christ, our prophet, will speak to us now through the preaching of his word. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, last night was a bit difficult because Pastor Chansky stole my introduction <laughs> and Dr. Pettit got into my text. <laughs> but that's all good. That's by the sovereignty of God. No, we were reminded last night about the, the tide of the culture that is coming against us. Uh, there's never been a time in Western culture that sees the evil and the perversity and the wickedness that we are experiencing today. And in the midst of that, we feel like pygmies. We recognize that the church itself is quite debased. The liberal church has no answers. The man-centered evangelical church waters down the gospel 
And even we can grow weak in the face of these things. So as I was thinking about the sovereign grace of God in the heart of the minister, and I worked with Pastor Hatfield on this, came to the conclusion that I'd like to speak to you about the, the grace, the mercy of God uh, sustaining us in our preaching. Because, in fact, this is the most important thing uh, that we do. And this text being 2 Corinthians 4, uh, 1 through 6. I'm sure that most of you know that uh, this second letter Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in one hand was an explanation why he had not visited them when they expected him. He didn't want to come because he was fearful of what he would find. He sent Titus, and Titus comes back with a good report. Uh, for the most part, the people were reconciled. They've dealt with the discipline cases, but false teachers now have come into the church, Judaizers, um, putting down Paul's ministry, commending their own ministry, and although most of the church seems to have resisted these teachers, there was an element that was following after the false teachers. And so Paul uh, speaks here a great deal about his ministry uh, and his approach to preaching and the glory of the new covenant gospel and new covenant ministry over against the false preaching of the Judaizers with a return to uh, Judaism. In chapter 3, then, he extols uh, the light of the gospel of the new covenant and the privilege of preaching that gospel. And that brings him now into chapter 4. You notice we begin with therefore. And so now he's going to address what he has said about both the problems implied and new covenant gospel to the new covenant minister. And so what I want to do tonight as we look at these six verses together is demonstrate to you that because of depravity and the opposition of Satan, the minister by the mercy of God must resolve to preach Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you tend to take naps, that's the sermon. Because of the depravity and opposition of Satan, the minister, by the mercy of God, must resolve to preach Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to unpack this thesis under three headings. I want us to consider the conduct of the gospel minister, the conviction of the gospel minister, and the commitment of the gospel minister. In verses 1 and 2, the apostle speaks to us about the conduct of his ministry, thus of the gospel minister. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul addresses here two temptations. And so in doing so, he chose us that we must uh, have perseverance and sincerity in the conduct of our ministry. In verse 1, he deals with the need of perseverance. He says, therefore, since we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Dr. Pettit spoke last night about the temptation to 
lose heart. Spurgeon called it the minister's fainting fits. And it is easy to lose heart in this age in which we live. We read Paul himself could face this temptation. We heard last night to some degree. Uh, He was fearful. He describes here some of the difficulties he had in his own ministry and now having to stand over again against false teachers. And brothers, we know, don't we, the danger of fainting and of losing heart. Yes, we've talked about the world out there around us with all of of its evil and machinations and uh, power, destruction, corruption that we're dealing with uh, in our own uh, culture. But in your churches, I'm sure that many of you are tempted to lose heart. Uh, You're not getting the kind of of response that you want to see. Your church remains small. Uh, You want to see more people come to Christ. You want to see the gospel have have a greater effect, and it's not happening. Then it gets worse, though. You've got that elder board or deacon board that is opposing you, or boss elder or boss deacon that is making life miserable, people in the church that are gossiping, maybe even attacking your family. These are the kind of problems that we face every day in the gospel ministry. And I know that some of you here tonight are facing these problems some of you probably have lost heart and others are tempted one survey says that 50 percent of gospel ministers are out of the ministry five years after seminary now i think that is probably not as bad in our reformed churches but it does show a trend and it shows the the problem of what some people call ministerial burnout, which is another way to talk about losing heart. Well, how does Paul counteract losing heart? Well, he does so with two things. In the first place, consider the quality of the ministry or your office. So you see how he begins. Therefore, since we have this ministry. Now, he's described this ministry in chapter 3 as he's contrasted Uh, the new covenant ministry with the old covenant ministry. Verse 7, the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was. How will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. You see, this is the ministry on which Paul is focusing when he says, therefore, we have this ministry. If you're a minister tonight and Christ has called you through the church, the church has laid hands on you, Christ has given to you a ministry. And when you are tempted to lag, when you're tempted to faint and to lose heart, one of the places to look is that King Jesus put me here. The church has put me here, or him, he through the church. Therefore, having received such a ministry. But notice his focus here is on fact as we have received mercy. Now, it's interesting that he uses mercy and not grace. They're not synonyms. I trust you know that. They're both, in a sense, probably species of the goodness of God. 
Uh, the grace of God is the attribute of God um, by which he is willing to look on sinners and not deal with us according to our demerit, but to pardon us. The mercy of God gets more into the difficulties of life. The mercy of God is, is this goodness and grace of God coming to us and alleviating the difficulties and the problems that we have. Interestingly, Paul relates his call to ministry with the word mercy. In 1 Timothy 1.13, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Why does Paul say mercy there and not grace? Other times he'll talk about the grace of God in his life. I think one hand is, is Timothy's problem. Um, Timothy was diffident. Timothy was timid. You see this in 2 Timothy. But even in the salutation of 1 Timothy 1, Paul normally simply says grace and peace. He adds mercy here when he writes Timothy. Because mercy comes from God to alleviate us or our problems in the midst of our difficulties. And so Paul said in the first place, yes, he received this ministry through the mercy of Christ. And perhaps by that he's saying that, well, Paul, you've messed up your life. You've messed up your reputation. You've got all kinds of difficulties. And I'm coming to you with mercy to put you in ministry regardless of what you've done. But then he adds to that, Paul, I'm going now in the midst of consequences of decisions you've made and because of difficulties in your life and because of all these problems you're going to face in the church and are in the world. And he talks about as well later in this book and the problems of all the churches within. Paul had a heap of problems. and He needed the mercy of Christ. And that's what he promises us here then is that we don't lose heart because by mercy God put us into the ministry and by mercy, God then sustains us in the ministry. And so, brothers, we have to get our eyes off of ourselves. We've got to look to the triune God. We must look to the mercy of the glorious triune God, purchased for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, administered to us by the Holy Spirit, knowing as we do so that we'll be strengthened in the inner man, as Paul says in Ephesians 3, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. That's where you must look. You must get your eyes off of yourself and off of your difficulties, off of the rejection and off of the battles and get them on the mercy of the triune God. Other words, we must persevere by mercy. Now, the second temptation is to tone down, adulterate, or shift the gospel, or use deceitful methods in order to counteract the pressures against us. He addresses this then in verse 2 with the need to have sincerity in our ministry. But we have renounced the things hidden. Because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. So the second temptation here was 
the problems being caused by the false teachers, yes, in Corinth and so many other places. And, and Paul repudiates what they're doing. He says that I renounce these things, shameful things, things done behind the scenes, things not worth or worthy to be spoken of publicly within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, we've renounced these hidden things because they're shameful. And that's why they're done in secret. He then unpacks what he means. Not walking, not conducting ministry, uh, Paul said of his own self, in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. Now, by this, he's indicting the false teachers. Now, they have accused him of doing this. They he writes in 2 Corinthians 12, 16, But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself, and nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you by deceit. You want to learn about the proper use of sarcasm, study 2 Corinthians. <laughs> now, Paul says this of them. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Now, there's two things they're doing. They're first walking in craftiness. They're using deceit and trickery to accomplish their purposes. Now, that's what false teachers do, you know. They'll use our words. They'll appear to be saying the truth. Uh, all the while, they're communicating something completely different. But uh, gospel ministers can do the same thing. We can become manipulative with a congregation. We can learn what chains to pull, what person to pull aside and to confide in, uh, how to worm our way into somebody else's uh, good graces or affections and use deceit and craft rather than uh, honesty and sincerity. And then adulterating the word. Sometimes he talks about peddling the word, selling it, but toning it down, taking away the offense of law and gospel. Smearing over these things, talking about a simple salvation. Just believe in Jesus and go to heaven and have a good marriage or have prosperity. And the law is not preached. The cost of discipleship is not preached. The demands of God are not preached. It destroys churches. This is what they do to build churches. I recently read... Uh, a piece, a testimony of a lady who supposedly was converted in a, a large church in my denomination. And she went to that church as an atheist, and as uh, she was there, she was attracted by what she was hearing, and uh, she converted. Uh, and that was fine until she started moving into the Christian culture. Because then she discovered that Christianity and the Bible was anti-abortion and anti-homosexual and pro-male uh, headship in the home. And she said, I've been betrayed because I never heard that in the pulpit. That's what Paul's talking about. We can tone down the whole counsel of God. We'll be tempted to tone it down. Uh, we... The text might be dealing with some depravity or with election or something else. Well, if I preach that, so-and-so is going to get offended. And we are not faithful. We adulterate the word 
of God. It's a serious temptation. I'm sure most of us sitting here have faced it. Just, have you had that experience where you prepared a sermon and the person you never expected to show up walked in? (laughs) I remember one time in Houston, I prepared a sermon. I was dealing with the importance of the education of our children uh, with some unkind things about uh, public education. Now, I'm not condemning public education. I don't think that the church takes a stand on that, but just about the philosophy. A woman we've been praying for, her husband is converted, never came to church. And she came to church that night. Lord, what are you doing? (laughs) She eventually was converted. By God's grace, um, he saved her. We don't have to second guess God. And we must not peddle our profane adulterate the gospel so in contrast what did Paul do how did he handle himself but by the manifestation of truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God this first uh, phrase by the manifestation of truth he's simply saying that I boldly freely clearly preached the whole counsel of God I didn't cover over things. I did not hold back. No, I fully proclaimed the counsel of God. He says in 2 Corinthians 3.12, Therefore, having such, that's this ministry entrusted to us, we use great boldness in our speech. And he writes earlier to the Corinthians in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.4, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. He calls on two witnesses that he has openly, boldly, clearly preached the word of God. He first calls upon the consciences of his hearers. So he says, commending ourselves to every man's conscience and then in the sight of God. Now this word commend is an important word in 2 Corinthians, and these false teachers had their letters of commendation, and Paul said, I don't need such, but I tell you what, I will appeal to the consciences of the men and women to whom I preached. Not in some broad way. No, you notice the specificity of it. He says, I am commending what I've just said for a witness to every person's conscience of how I preached. Now, this is important for a couple of reasons. Uh, On the one hand, it reminds us that we need to be preaching to people's consciences. Too often our sermons stop uh, with the mind, and we can teach people the truth. But the truth must be pressed on the heart, and it must be addressed to the conscience. You know, the conscience is a great ally. You know the conscience of your people. You know the conscience of an unconverted person. You can be like the doctor who has the person on the examining table. Does it hurt here? Ow! Yeah, you know where it hurts. But you must go for the conscience. You must press the truth upon the conscience. So the conscience then will bear witness that they have been brought face to face with the demands of God. And that's what Paul's saying. He said, every one of you can bear witness 
in your consciences that I came to you zealously, boldly, pressing the truth on you. I know of, of one minister who had a lot of young couples in his church, new Christians, or, and um, sometimes families would come to visit, and uh, so unconverted parents were there, and after the service, the daughter anxiously asked her mother, well, what did you think about the sermon? I don't believe a thing he said, but he sure does. <laughs> but that's preaching to the conscience, with the person's conscience, knowing that you didn't gloss over things, but freely, simply in Christ. But the second witness is even more powerful. Notice he says, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Does that grip you men who preach? You have an audience of one. Jeremiah says the same thing. Uh, uh, earlier Paul says in chapter 2, verse 17, we're not like the many peddling the word of God, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. We speak in Christ in dependence on him. And we speak in the sight of God. Let that settle in. That, more than anything else in the world, will stop you from uh, compromising, uh, covering over the truth. And let the beauty of preaching grip you that you're actually preaching to see God glorified, to be lifted up, and to do it for his glory, and to do it for his approbation and approval. So as we face the realities of the world around us, the awful task of the warfare set before us in the culture, the difficulties that many of you have in your own churches. Let Paul, by the Spirit, speak to you how to conduct yourself in your ministry. By God's mercy, persevere in your office. And by God's grace, preach the truth to the conscience of the people in the sight of God. Uh, the conduct, then, of the gospel minister. It leads, then, to a conviction. And Paul expresses this conviction in verses 3 and 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul begins with a concession. You could say the concession is kind of the elephant in the room. Well, Paul, if you're doing this, why is there not more success? Why is not the church growing more rapidly? And he makes the concession, even if our gospel is veiled. In other words, it is veiled. Now, in a minute, I'll show you how this, I think, completes his argument. But as he begins to think about the uh, the veiling of the gospel, he expresses now a twofold conviction about his hearers their depravity and the malice of Satan. He first expresses his conviction about their depravity. Even if our gospel's veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Those who are perishing, he's spoken about in 1 Corinthians 1 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Those who are in opposition to the gospel of God. 
Those who hate God, who hate God's word, who hate God's Christ, who love their sin and their corruption and their death. And they're perishing, as he'll say there, in unbelief. But they are bound up in their depravity. They're unwilling and unable to come to Christ. That's the status of those who are perishing. Unwilling and unable to come to Christ. But then the problem is exasperated in verse 4. In whose case these who are perishing in their depravity, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. He now refers to Satan working in the hearts, the minds, the affections of the perishing, of those who refuse to believe the gospel. And all he's doing is making things worse because he's blinding them. God's given them over to Satan that they might be hardened in their sin. Even as you have in the Philadelphia Confession, chapter 5, paragraph 6, for those wicked and ungodly men whom God as the righteous judge for former sin doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding, wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had, exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lust and the temptations of the world and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves even under those means which God uses to soften others. Paul calls them the God of this world because the holy God has handed the unbelievers over to him. Yes, he is bound. Uh, the nations are Christ. Uh, Satan cannot hinder the gospel going to the ends of the earth. But he still is active and powerful, particularly in the hearts and minds of the wicked and the corrupt and the depraved. And thus, the very gospel that converts is the gospel that then hardens, as Paul also speaks of that in the end of chapter 2. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one an aroma of, from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life, who's adequate for these things. Nobody ever leaves under the preaching of the faithful preaching of the Word of God neutral. Some of you might need to think about that tonight. And these church growth people that want folks to leave happy, if they leave happy, we know who's not been present, don't we? And that's God. A person will either come under conviction or begin to think more seriously about the gospel, perhaps even be converted, or they will harden themselves. Nobody leaves neutral. And those who harden themselves, God has given them over to the God of this world to blind them. Now, I want you to notice that Paul points out the defect is not in the gospel. A blind woman can't see the, the sun. It's not the sun's fault, is it? It's her blindness. And Paul speaks now about this glorious light of the gospel. 
They're blinded, but they're blinded to the light of the gospel. And look how he describes the gospel. That they might not see the light of the gospel. Oh, brothers, sisters, the gospel is a glorious light. It's an amazing light. It's a life-giving light, is this gospel. Why? Because it proclaims the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The gospel is the revelation of the triune God to us. We learn of him in Christ. And as we come to him, to Christ, we then come into union with the triune God, and we begin to know God, be transformed by him. That's the glory of the gospel. Have you tonight seen the light of the glory of the gospel? I'm sure there's some people here who haven't. Now, maybe everybody here thinks he has. But you're confusing the light of the glory of the gospel, the fact you know gospel facts. Or you are a good member of the church. Maybe even you're a minister. But you, at this point, know nothing about the light of the glory of the gospel. Your heart's never been moved by your own sin or by the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and what God does for sinners in him. And you've never then, because of that light, been drawn from your sins to rest in Christ alone. And if I am describing you now, you have a choice. Will you harden yourself under this admonition? Will you become angry? Or may the Spirit actually pour your heart, prick you. Maybe I don't know the gospel. Maybe I should talk to someone tonight about the light of the glory of the gospel in the face of Christ Jesus, the image of God. Now, how does this connect? Why does Paul go from conduct to this conviction? Well, I think the concession helps us understand when he says, even if our gospel is veiled, what he's showing by this conviction is that all the tricks in the world cannot penetrate the heart of the natural man. All the craftiness can never undo the malice, hatred, and opposition of Satan. He's actually bringing us to a point to understand we either must do it his way or we shall fail spiritually. That's what he's doing. That's why he moves from conduct to conviction. But now he moves to commitment. What does this conduct and conviction produce in us? Verses 5 and 6. For we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus is Lord and ourselves as your bond servants for Christ Jesus' sake, for Jesus' sake. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. Notice that verse 5 begins with the little word for. What's Paul doing here? Paul was a master logician. You must always pay attention to his connective. So, um, he now is linking what he said. So because of this, because of depravity and the oppression and malice of Satan, because of this, he says, we must not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. Paul says only one thing that we have in all of our arsenal 
to deal with this world and with all of the spiritual problems we face, and that is we must preach Christ Jesus as Lord. Now, notice the contrast. It's very important for us. We must not preach ourselves. I think it's probably one of our greatest temptations as ministers to preach ourselves, isn't it? I've never, that I can remember going to the pulpit not having to wrestle with wrong motivations, confessing them, asking God to pardon, and accept what I do in spite of those things that yet lurk in my heart. And that's the problem of a lot of us. Uh, you want uh, that respect. You want, oh, what a great sermon. Uh, you maybe even want to be really known, you know, known as a, a really fine experimental Calvinistic preacher, and that's the reputation you're preaching for. Or fame, or applause, or maybe getting on somebody's speaker circuit, or whatever. Oh, it's such, it's such a struggle, isn't it? We're so vain, and we preach ourselves. We preach for ourselves. But Paul says, no, we must preach Jesus Christ in all of his fullness. Pay attention here to the names and titles of Christ. I often tell people we play religious hopscotch with the names of God. Well, we know the names of God, so we come to that name in the text, we just jump over it. But there's not a wasted word in Scripture, is there? And every name of God used in every text of Scripture relates to what God is wanting to teach us in that text of Scripture. So we preach Christ in his fullness. He's Jesus. He is the God-man, the Savior of sinners. He's the Christ, the wonderfully anointed prophet, priest, and king in whom is everything that we need for conversion, perseverance, and eternal life. And he's Lord. We preach him as Lord. uh, The Lord of glory. The Lord of our lives. We preach Christ in all of his fullness. In all of his sufficiency. In all the depth and breadth of humiliation and exaltation. In all the glory of his perfect obedience. In all the glory of his hell, wrath, satisfying crucifixion, death, and burial. We preach him in the glory now that he's exalted on high. King of kings and Lord of lords, ruling over all things for the sake of the advance of his kingdom. Oh, we get to preach Jesus Christ. Do you get excited about that? Because he said, as we heard last night, if he's lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself. You want to see people saved? You preach Jesus Christ. What does Paul say? I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, that doesn't mean that your sermons are only about Christ. Now, I've already pointed out we must boldly preach the whole counsel of God, law and gospel. But just as in old Rome, every road, old Italy, every road led to Rome. In fact, now, I've never been in an Italian village or town did not have a street sign that pointed to Rome. Every sermon, every truth must lead us to Jesus Christ as Lord. Lift him up. As Pastor Martin pointed out in his little pamphlet on unction, you will not have unction if you don't preach Christ. The Spirit will be grieved. Because what's the Spirit's ministry? To point to Christ. So he says, 
because of these things, not in spite of them, because of depravity, because of opposition of Satan, because of where the world is, because of the problems in your church, preach Jesus Christ as Lord, not yourself. He said we're going to do that humbly and confidently. Humbly and confidently. He says, preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. Now, we're Jesus' servants. But Jesus has given us to his church to be their servants. I've never visited any really wealthy person's house, but I have heard stories People have gone to some nice estate or something in, in England or whatever, and the, the Lord of the manor wasn't going to be there, but he told his servants, now my guests are going to be here, and you serve them. That's what our Savior is saying to you and me. He says, yes, I'm your master, and I've modeled it for you. I came not to be served, but to serve. But you now, you must serve my sheep. You must serve my blood-bought church. Peter expands on it in 1 Peter chapter 5, therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight not under compulsion but voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain but with eagerness and not as yet lording over those allotted to your care but proving to be examples to the flock. Brother ministers, do you see your people as those whom you're to serve or are they to serve you? Are you in the ministry because it's a, a nice place of prestige or a comfortable living or a nice place and that everything's there for you? Do you are you gripped by this reality that Christ, we must humbly preach Christ by serving our people sacrificially, humbly, Putting them first. We're to preach Christ humbly. And then we come to the climax and complete the circle. We're to preach Christ confidently. So he says that God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. We heard about this last night. But you see the parallel. The powerful second person of the Godhead who spoke all things into existence. Paul takes here the example of light on day one. That's not sun, that's light on day one. He's the one who will shine the light of the gospel into our hearts. Through that regeneration, through effectual calling, shining his light into our hearts so that we then, who were blinded to the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, now are enlightened. We now have knowledge of this glory of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus. Behold in him, in his face. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Behold in him all the beauty and the glory of God. Here we come to the great supernaturalness of preaching. This above everything else is what keeps me going. Because I want you to understand what he's saying here. Because we miss it. Dr. Pettit read from, or quoted, Romans 10, 14. How shall you call upon him in whom you have not believed? 
And your Bible is going to say, and how shall you believe in him of whom you've not heard? That's wrong. The Greek's quite clear. How shall you call upon him you have not believed? How shall you believe in him whom you have not heard? And how shall you hear without a preacher? Do you see what Paul is saying there? This great Reformation doctrine of preaching set out by Calvin and the Institutes repeated uh, throughout the history of Reformed preaching. When the lawfully ordained man of God preaches the word of God, Jesus Christ is speaking through him. Pierre Marcel says, The very Christ who spoke light into existence, who stilled the storm by his voice, who raised the dead, is the Christ who preaches. When you and I preach his word, that's the glory of our task. That's the confidence now that we have in this ministry of light that's been given unto us that when we preach, Christ speaks. He speaks to the unconverted. He shines the light into their hearts and converts them. He speaks to the saints. He speaks the words that they need to hear. Uh, You'll sometimes go into the pulpit and you'll have one thing to say. And the Spirit, as Pierre Pierre Marcel says, will not allow you to say it. I come to you tonight. I don't know most of you. But the Spirit does. And so I plan different types of application. But I'm trusting the Spirit. And I prepare well. But I trust the Spirit will speak to you what you need tonight. And that's what we can go into the pulpit with. Lord's Day after Lord's Day. This is the confidence. We need not lose heart. We need not faint. But again, as was said last night, this points us to the importance of prayer. Because it is a supernatural act. Do you pray for your people? When I was in high school, my pastor, and it was a fairly large church, a conservative Presbyterian church in the 60s, he prayed every week for every member before he went to the pulpit. I carried that with me into my ministry. Every name, every person, every visitor whose name I knew. Because how can I expect God to work in them, as Baxter says, if I've not prayed for them? Are you praying over your sermon that God will give you these words? And then over your preaching that you will have this glorious Holy Spirit anointing that we call unction. Are you teaching your congregation to pray for you and with you? And for this preaching. And then, does your church have a real prayer meeting? Prayer meeting is it's gone the way of evening church, or I guess evening church went first, and prayer meeting's gone next. How in the world can we expect God to bless our preaching if we're not coming together as the people of God and pleading for it? And I, when I'm in a congregation, I'll tell, I said, folks, if you don't go to the prayer meeting, you're cheating. Whatever blessings this church has is because of the people that were there. And you're not going. Oh, we've got to learn to, to plead with God, don't we? When Jesus was at Nazareth, it said he couldn't do many miracles because of unbelief. Now, unbelief was not kryptonite that 
weakened him. No, it was a spiritual law that Christ did not ordinarily operate in a context of unbelief in a Reformed church. Is there any more profound expression of unbelief than prayerlessness? The early church was continually devoting themselves to prayer and God was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. Don't expect it to happen if we're not praying. I'm not saying it will happen if we do pray, but don't expect it if we don't. And so, I trust that you've seen from these verses that because of depravity and the opposition of Satan, the minister by the mercy of God must resolve to preach Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. And may you be encouraged then. It's not your work. It's his work. And he's promised you everything you need. But he's promised you mercy in your office, in your calling, in this work. And so by God's grace, go home, brothers, encouraged. Some of you have been cutting corners. Repent and go home repentant and encouraged. And don't faint. But rest and our glorious triune God. Let us pray. Oh, holy God, we thank you for your word. It's true, it's powerful, it's searching. Oh, how we need it. And Lord, may my friends tonight be greatly encouraged by your spirit through your word. May we all labor together shoulder to shoulder in this wonderful gospel enterprise that you've entrusted to us. For Christ's sake, amen.